Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. I'm Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I'm going to answer a question from Jan, and he was asking about outsourcing and why I don't outsource a little bit more, especially the things that I deem boring. Good question. And if you're a fan of the show, which you probably are since you're listening, you might remember last week when I thought I was going to be answering this question, but I ran out of time because I I had such a great question by Mark and I basically filled the whole episode. So I decided to hang on to this one and push it forward, which was odd. I didn't mean to do that, but there was sort of a a little bit of a distracting day going on when I was recording and I had plumbers in the house. Actually, not not plumbers. I had um, just some some handy men, uh, handy persons here. They were, they were men. There was a father and son team and they were putting a sink in our laundry room, which was, you know, a nice, nice little addition to, for me to clean like brewing stuff, a big sink that will help me not get the kitchen sink so dirty when I'm brewing and have to clean some large brew kettles and kegs and some other things like that. So anyway, these guys were um, doing some work for us and they were just sort of in and out and it was a little bit distracting that day. And technically I could have done an extra long episode last time, but I needed to go check on some things. And I'm going to do a a quick digression before I get to the, the topic here, which I know some people don't love, but that's what we're doing today. And it's uh, it's a piece of advice. So I, I try to not just give random stories with no point, although sometimes that does happen. In this case, these guys installed the sink, so they had to you know drill a hole in the tile and run some pipe, and you know you got some water supply and some drain things going on. So they put the invoice down, they walked out and I was like, Hey guys, um, can you show me what you worked on? Just so I know exactly what you did and the things that you touched. Right. So they went, they showed me some pipes in the crawl space, what they added. And then we came upstairs, checked the sink and it was like water flowed, things drained. Everything seemed mostly okay. I went back to work, finished recording the episode that I just mentioned there. And my wife checked to see the faucet and anything else. I mean, we looked and it didn't look like there were any leaks or anything, but she stood around a little bit more, had the water running, looked under the sink a little bit more and it was dripping. All right. It was dripping under there and they literally just finished telling us, Hey, we did all, all the proper checks. There's no leaks anywhere. We did this and we did that. And we followed all this, the proper protocol. These guys are fucking experts, right? So, and we just paid them money to do the work. And they said, yes, we not, not only are we showing you what we, we did, we're telling you, we did all the safety checks and all the, um, you know, due diligence to make sure things are working. And then when you poke around a little bit, you see (laughs) water was linking under the sink. So my wife ran out and was like, Hey guys, uh, there's a leak under here. You need to come and fix it. So they came back in and tightened something up or did something. I was in here doing something else. So I didn't actually see. And then my wife, after they finished up, my wife said, Hey, I went downstairs, went in the crawl space, checked it out to make sure nothing was leaking and it looks okay. And 
their response was, yeah, it shouldn't be leaking, which is kind of amazing after they literally just said they did all the checks and then we found a leak in two minutes. I mean, they had not even gotten out of the driveway yet by the time she found the leak. And, you know, shame on me. I was, it was the middle of the work day. I was recording and doing some other stuff, so I couldn't get in there. But the moral of the story here is even when you're working with uh, experts or people that should know what they're doing, and even if they say, yeah, we did all the checks and there's no leaks everywhere, it's perfect out here. There's no harm in doing the due diligence yourself and taking a look on your own. So again, you can apply this anywhere, not just a handyman or um, you know people working on your house. It applies to everything, like home inspections. It applies to your uh, your finance financial um, actually everything, all financial stuff. Whether it's your financial planning, if it's your you know taxes, if it's your day to day, like you really got to double check everyone. Not all the time, not forever, but, you know, spot checks are at least worthwhile. And then if you're dealing with a specific vendor or something like that, like we were dealing with a handyman, it's uh, worthwhile to double check other people's work, even if you think that they should have done a good job or visually it looks like they did a good job. You always got to double check. Always got to double check. So... This episode is brought to you by Ezoic. Ezoic is a Google certified partner and they've recently rolled out their new site speed accelerator. Basically, it speeds up your your site. It makes it load faster and you really see a huge improvement most of the time with the Google PageSpeed Insight score. Now, if you already have a high Page Insight score, then it's not going to go up as much, but I had experience with uh, one of my sites. Basically, it went from the high 20s, low 30s to the high 90s just by implementing the Site Speed Accelerator. Now, a few people have asked me about using Ezoic and basically using their DNS. The best way you can use the Site Speed Accelerator and Ezoic in general is to use their DNS. And the reason why is you're able to use their caching and their CDN. That's a content delivery network. Basically, those are services. Those are things you would typically have to pay for separately, but it's included with the Site Speed Accelerator. There's a free seven-day trial, so I encourage you to check it out. And pe- again, people are concerned about using the DNS of some other third party, but basically, if you use a CDN that is what you do. That That's like the thing that happens. If you use a CDN, you have to use another DNS and things are loading sort of outside of your normal registrar and your hosting account, but it helps your site load faster. So it's sort of implicit. And I do it myself, so I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't worry about it too much. If you're using a CDN, then you're using other uh, servers to load your site anyway. This is a site speed accelerator, so you need to use caching in the CDN. Thus, you have a much faster loading site. So there's no harm in checking out the free seven-day trial. And thanks again to Ezoic. So Jan has sent in questions before. I think he's been in episodes 162 and 168. And you can also be featured kind of like Jan. 
maybe you can get some personal advice if you send in a meaty enough question, feedback at Doug.show. In this case, Jan was curious about why I don't outsource more of the routine parts of you know, creating websites. Why don't I just hire a team? Maybe build a self-managing team where they really don't need my input. They understand what they're working on and they can just, you know, sort of drive drive results. They can do the work that's required and then I could check in and, you know, supervise as necessary, which is, I mean, I think that's pretty, that's a valid point because I do talk about outsourcing certain pieces of the business pretty often. And I can't remember the specific episode that triggered this question that that Jan was asking about, but I believe that I've alluded to this in, in a few areas where I've talked about how I enjoy creating and selling and marketing courses. I am doing this podcast, of course. I have content over on YouTube. So I'm trying to, I mean, really work on things that I enjoy working on and areas where I can learn a little bit more, where I'm challenged in different ways. It's been super interesting branching out and growing the Niche Site Project platform and taking a lot of the same ideas and just putting them in different formats. It sounds pretty simple, but it's it's more complicated than that. As far as the courses and my email list and that revenue side of the business, it's a great way to diversify. And there's a lot of work that's required for really anything that you're trying to do that's worthwhile. And I've I've built a lot of websites and I've enjoyed and learned a ton from those areas. And I'm still creating new ones. In fact, um, even though I'm trying not to do as much, I started a brand new site this year. I purchased... Um, one sort of smaller site earlier in the year. I started a site in 2019 in the summertime and I'm probably acquiring another small site before the end of 2020. So even though I'm trying to not do as much, I'm kind of good at working on these affiliate sites, putting content together, the keyword research, pulling the teams together and getting work done. So the answer is, I don't want to build huge teams. So in the episode that Jan was asking about the trigger, the question, I think I said, Hey, some of this stuff is just a little boring now. Like for me to start up a new WordPress site, pick a theme, get things set up, all those sort of routine, trivial things. Yeah. Completely boring. Not, I, I mean, I can waste some time on it. It feels productive in the moment, but I can do other things that are, maybe they're a little more interesting and I can learn a little bit more. And the other side of the coin is it's helping me diversify the business. And I'm very forward and and straightforward with this uh, portion of affiliate marketing, especially with Amazon affiliate marketing. You don't control the affiliate program. So if Amazon wants to change the commission rates like they did in 2017 and here again in 2020, they can do it and there's basically nothing you can do about it. Yes, you can diversify your revenue streams uh, on a specific site. You can add display ads. You can have other affiliate programs. You can make sure the niche you're targeting actually has some 
digital products so you have an even more diverse set of revenue streams potentially, right? You don't have to pursue all the possible revenue streams. You can stick to one area if you want to. But the point is, as I can have a platform and as I I do have a platform with Niche Site Project and people that want to learn things that I've done, I learn processes, I could distill them down and present it in a way that people can use with templates and systems and frameworks. That's really interesting because I can learn new things. I could test them out. I could help other people do it. And then I could teach other people how to do it after I've gone through, you know, a little bit of rigor to make sure those sort of things work. Now, as far as just, you know, kind of what Jan's getting at, and Jan is a student in multi-profit site, the course that I was, um, one of the courses I was talking about where essentially you're looking for niches that have physical products. Maybe you can buy those products on Amazon. Maybe you can get them in other retailers that have affiliate programs. You also want to look for digital products because those often have high margins and not always, but sometimes depending on your niche, a little bit lower competition because I'll just pick randomly the outdoor niche. If you go to an outdoor site, a lot of times there's mostly just reviews on physical products. What if you reviewed software that was out there for, say, hunters and hikers, and then you also promoted courses on outdoor activities like backpacking or hiking or like, uh, what do you call it when you use a map? It's like, uh, shoot, I can't, I can't remember. I got a cup compass right next to me. But anyway, how to use a compass. There you go. There, there's one of them. So there's a huge range of products you could sell. And the key is to make sure you have a diverse area that you can uh, target. So that's kind of the idea with multi-profit site. And Jan mentions that he's working on creating SOPs, standard operating procedures, so that he can hire folks create a team to execute the things that he needs to do, which is why he's like, Doug, why don't you do that? So I have done it in certain pieces. I have reached a point where it's not as interesting for me to, you know, pull together the big teams. And what I have been doing is really just outsourcing to specific companies like niche website builders, like brand builders, and a couple others out there, content refined. And I've tested some companies along the way that haven't worked out as well. I don't talk about them as much anymore. And, you know, they're, they are out there and it's, it is tough to test them because you do have to stick with a company for a little while. A brand new company is often going to go through um, some growing pains. They're trying to figure out what to do. They're trying to figure out how to deliver the service and actually work with all the clients. So you, you kind of have to test them out. And I do my best uh, before I recommend or mention a company to make sure that I'm a customer, that I'm like purchasing and using the stuff that I need to, uh, I guess, understand the quality. So with all that said, I'm doing more high level outsourcing that is a lot more expensive. If I were to hire a you know, content team like niche website builders is way more expensive than if I hired, you know, 15 writers and worked with them directly. But the great part is I don't have to talk to 15 writers. I just talk to one person over 
at uh, you know whatever company I end up hiring. And that's the way it was with Content Refined too. I would just ping uh, Maddie and be able to get some help on certain things. Uh, perhaps if there was a project manager that I was working with directly there too, then I would just work with them depending on the project. So I've gone up sort of a level and that is because I have a higher budget and I have that flexibility, but I know everyone doesn't have that. And, you know, John, for what you're doing, I think it's great to create those SOPs. Now, this also goes into a different area where, you know, some people are maybe thinking, duck, you could grow much bigger. And I've actually had some off the record phone calls with folks who just, they were like, Doug, you have a great platform, good message. And, you know, why don't you grow bigger? Why don't you do this or do that? And while it's tempting, right? It's just keep growing, keep growing. At some point you realize maybe, hopefully, you don't have to keep growing. Maybe you're okay where you're at. Now, I know you can become stagnant, become a little complacent, but it's not a bad thing if you need to put focus in other areas in your life in general, or if you have other interests, right? I uh, started listening to some of the brewing podcasts that I used to listen to a lot back in the day. And I'm brewing a little bit more beer right now, falls hit, getting settled in the house. I have a utility sink in the laundry room so I can go clean stuff a little bit more uh, effectively and not make a mess elsewhere. So I, when I'm brewing beer, I am often drinking a beer unless it's like early in the morning and I'm listening to brewing podcasts where people are geeking out on beer. They're talking about all these crazy details of the brewing process, whether it's, uh, you know, grains or yeast or hops or, you know, temperatures, there's all these details and it's fantastic. I love it. I lost my train of thought there. All of a sudden, you know, I'm talking about beer and brewing beer and I have no clue what I was talking about before. Let me reel this in. Oh, right. I have other hobbies. So I'm putting some time in beer. And the point is I have been lucky enough to hang out with some people that are fairly young and quote unquote retired. Everybody seems to have a hobby. Although I went hiking with a couple, couple uh, folks last week and one dude has been retired for, I think a couple years and he literally, he, he doesn't do any work. And I was like, Oh man, you know, you're getting, getting a little bored. Like what's going on. And he mentioned that for several months, he would just take it easy. He kept, he caught up on a couple projects around the house. He would take some naps and just generally chill out. He's been picking up other hobbies like art. So he kind of has a tech background and he was not really very uh, sort of artistic, although he had some uh, musical uh, He plays guitar some, so he, he plays some music, but he never really got into like visual arts or anything like that. So he's been doing some painting and working on sculptures and stuff. So it's totally valid to just follow some other interests. Of course, this guy is retired, but I've also been able to hang out with some people who um, like Mr. Money Mustache, Pete, and then we have uh, Carl, Mr. 1500, who's been a guest on this show. He retired and he has a couple of hobbies. He has a blog 
And of course, Mr. Money Mustache has a blog, but these folks uh, realized, hey, we've, we've saved enough. We've been productive in our corporate lives and we're going to stop working. They may pick up some other jobs here and there. Pete actually started like a a building company and built homes for a little while. And he told that story on the Tim Ferriss podcast. And then that was one of his sort of failures. He realized, Hey, this is a lot of work and I'd rather just sort of chill out all that to say, I have been exposed and personally know some people that realized, Hey, I have enough. I don't have to keep pushing. Yes. I can work on things that I find enjoyable. I like doing these things. I like say, working with my hands and building. I like renovating homes. I like to blog or whatever, or brew beer, for example. But at some point, you don't have to keep going, even though you, um, you, know, you may feel the pressure externally. It's 100% valid, though. I know some people are thinking, hey, it would be really cool to build something as big as I possibly can and really, really put a lot of effort and give 100% in that's not really what I want to do. So Jan, I think the overall picture here is I definitely like uh, some pieces of what you're talking about, building the team, putting the systems together, having a self-managing team. All that's fantastic. For my goals of what I want to do right now, that doesn't line up. So I right now have a very lean team. I have a video editor and I have a, an executive assistant who's virtual and the executive virtual assistant helps me all over the place with content on YouTube, on the podcast, with other areas. She has an English degree, so she's strong in areas that I'm not, which is great. So I like this very small lean team. I could see potentially, let's say I really want to go harder on YouTube, which is not necessarily the case at all. But if I wanted to go harder on YouTube, it could be interesting to have a producer that helped me pull together episodes, content ideas, actually write scripts. So I have probably 10 video ideas on my whiteboard over there. And it would be helpful to have someone write those scripts for me and then I could just record them. So they're, they're, pieces of content and ideas where I probably have 80% of the things that I would need to say written somewhere. It would need to be edited and changed up a little bit to actually create a video, but that's the whole thing, right? I could outsource that portion of it, right? Have a a full-time producer over there on YouTube, but you know, I'm getting by (laughs) right now and for my goals, the the other hard part, right? You have to look at exactly what you're trying to do. YouTube's really valuable, but adding more subscribers, while it would be great, it's a bit of a vanity metric. And when I, you know, look at the ROI, when I look at the effort going into YouTube, it's sometimes hard to correlate the the value. You know, uh, I guess the ROI to be specific. When I look at the way that I make money directly from YouTube, it's very low. I know YouTube plays a big role in 
the trust and, and the brand overall. And I know that's valid, but when I look at it, I'm like, Oh, if I hired, you know, someone to work 20 hours a week to do a lot of this production stuff, I'm not sure I would see the ROI. Now, as I'm saying this out loud, I am thinking, God, I'm like, maybe you're right, man. Maybe, right. It's a thing where, especially on the YouTube side in this specific example, if I were to hire someone it might not be something that I could see a direct ROI in, in the short term. Maybe it's 18 months down the road and it's connected to something outside of YouTube. Those things are possible and you definitely have to put yourself out there, try, you have to gamble a little bit. But again, when I peel everything else back and I know some of my friends that do have bigger teams, Rob Atkinson, when I interviewed him last time, he had something like 30 plus employees. Many of them are part-time. Many of them are full-time. He has a COO, so he doesn't have to be in the minutiae all the time. And he can do his you know, CEO activities, visionary stuff, overall direction of the company. But he still has to have a, enough work for 30 plus people to do things. And that's a big responsibility. And it's a source of stress. You know, there's no way around it. That is a source of stress. Even if you're, you know, even if you're super chill and calm, which I'm pretty calm and pretty chill, I, that that's a decent amount of stress where the livelihood of 30 plus people is on your shoulders. You kind of have to, you know, get, have your shit together most of the time. Yeah. Again, you, you can have, you can have, a CEO. You can have a COO in place. So you're really just the business owner. But again, you still have the stress of all that going on. And, you know, maybe one day I'll be driven in that direction a little bit more. But right now, currently, I enjoy the sort of chill, <laughs> chill lifestyle and a lot of flexibility. And when I was making notes for this episode, that was one of the big things. I love having flexibility in the past. Um, I think 18 months, maybe a little bit more, almost two years, I've taken roughly a month off every few months. I've moved a couple times. I took a big vacation. I've done additional traveling and just visited family. And the flexibility has been a huge component of, uh, I think, my happiness in general. I can work on projects or courses that I want to work on. I can start new websites and I have just this autonomy. And if I need to put things on pause, for example, like the, I guess it was the age site case study, which a lot of people still ask me about. I'm going to be uh, sort of respawning that before too long. This is the first time publicly that I've mentioned it, but that was something where things were going pretty good. I had to put it on the shelf. The site continued to grow right? For about six months or so. And then the May 2020 algorithm update hit the traffic. So traffic dropped by, I don't know, like 60%, 50, 60%, something like that. And it's sort of been stable. Revenue has been crappy. I think it's under 50 bucks a month for the last several months. But the fact is I haven't done anything to it in a year. Anyway, I had the flexibility to just say, I have to put this on the shelf and I need to do some other stuff. I need to focus elsewhere for a little while and then I can come back to it if I need to. So again, 
flexibility is huge. And if I had a team working on the site, there's a couple arguments, right? That the site could have still been growing and been in much better shape. But at the end of the day, I just, I didn't have to, I didn't have pressure. I just looked at it and I was like, I'm putting in, I'm putting it on the shelf for a little while and I'm not going to do anything with it. I could come back to it when I'm ready or not. So again, people do ask a lot about that. It was a very popular case study and I've, I failed to continue marketing it in an effective way. And I uh, wasn't doing timely updates. So I need to rekindle it and I have kind of a plan in place. So actually this is a good touch point. If you're interested in the age site case study, please shoot me an email feedback at doug.show. Let me know if you have any questions about it. That'll help uh, see the upcoming episodes and other content around that site and what I've been doing with it. Well, I haven't been doing anything with it, but what I will be doing with it and just, um, you know, I can give a more proper update if I know what questions you have. Now to the mailbag, this is the niche website builders Q&A segment, and they've been helping me out, niche website builders, with both content and a shotgun skyscraper campaign for a new site that I started in July. It's been going very well since I brought them on board. They do an excellent job, you know, with the content. I have a standing order of 20,000 words and, you know, it's just, it works like clockwork and I don't have to babysit the process. So thanks to niche website builders. The question today is from Carl and Carl is responding to the drop shipping episode with John Murphy, which was back a few episodes ago, something like, do I have it handy right here? Yeah, that was back in episode 185, so just a few episodes ago. And Carl asked a couple questions here. I'm gonna protect and hide your niche for you there, buddy. You say, um, have I come across any good tools that can find drop shipping suppliers? And are there any partners that can set this up for a fee on a subdomain? And then any uh, good sources to hire for consulting for dropshipping? And I'll, I'll get to that as well. And last, last little bit. Okay. And the rest is pretty specific to the niche. So overall, I think if you haven't heard that episode with John Murphy, definitely check it out. And I will be talking a little bit more about dropshipping because uh, Duke, one of the success story interviews from way back, I can't even remember when I featured Duke, but it must have been in the first 20 to 30 episodes. He had an affiliate site and he shifted a lot of it over to dropshipping. So he's selling his own products now, which is pretty awesome. And I'm excited to learn more about it. I'm actually going to be interviewing a little, interviewing him uh, a little bit later today. And I actually don't even know the sequence of when a couple of these episodes are coming out. But the point is dropshipping is something that I'll probably be talking a little bit more about just because it's, it's new to me. And there's a lot of people that are working on it. And I did have a very early interest in dropshipping. It's covered in the four hour work week. And it seems to be a pretty, you know, simple business model as many of these are. Uh, but like many, it gets very complicated quickly and it's quite challenging. So, all right, let me get to some of the questions here. 
Because I don't know much about drop shipping, I don't know about finding the suppliers. I'm, I'm really unsure about that. And then as far as other partners, and now that I'm saying this out loud, I don't have any specifics, but here's the thing. One of, one of the questions is, you know, how can I maybe find the suppliers? Maybe how can I find those products? And I was thinking about just how I would go about it if I didn't have, you know, really any, anywhere to start. Maybe I'm unsure of some of the resources that are out there. Well, number one, I'm sure if you start poking around, you can find some tools that will you know, point you in the right direction. Otherwise, what I would do is look at bigger vendors in the space. Most likely, some of those larger vendors are white labeling some products on some level, meaning they're ordering products and they're putting their branding on top of it. At least that is how I'm using it in my definition. It could be a little bit off, by the way. And what you can do is find some of those products where it looks like, I don't think they're making these products are in-house. They're not manufacturing them on, on their own. They're having them made somewhere else and then they're selling them. As you start digging, you may find sort of the same looking products sold by different vendors, different retailers that are out there. And once you start seeing like, oh, this actually looks like the same bag. I'm looking at my backpack right now. When you start identifying that certain products pretty much look the same, maybe a couple things are a little bit different, then you can probably find the supplier. It potentially is from China or somewhere overseas where the manufacturing could be cheaper. It's shipped over on a crate and then, you know, you, you could figure it out from there. The thing is, you know, what I'm describing here is like you would have it shipped over and then you're handling all the fulfillment. But with drop shipping, it, it's somewhere else. You're not handling the fulfillment. Someone else is sending it from their warehouse and you're, you're basically marketing it. So if you can figure out some of those products, you might be able to trace down and find the supplier. How you do that, probably some Google searches, keep looking around. If you can you know, get your hands on one of those products, now I'm looking at one of my light kits. So I have like a light box that I use for my videos. And if you go over on Amazon and start looking for video lighting and different kits, what you'll discover is, you know, there's 50 different kinds, 50 different brands. They all look pretty much the same. And when you peel back the labels, I have a hunch they're probably coming out of the same place. It's just maybe a different company purchased them. The prices may be slightly different, but they're all almost exactly the same. If you can get your hands on one, then you might be able to identify some of the manufacturing codes and some of those uh, little details that are physically on the product. Again, you'd have Maybe you have to search on Google, start looking for suppliers and looking for things. But as someone who's never done any drop shipping, I don't even know the resources that are out there. So you have to do some digging. I have a feeling if you enrolled in one of the drop shipping courses, they probably have like a set list of, all right, here's you know, 80% of the things that people are trying to sell. You can get them from you know, these huge list of su suppliers. That's my guess. 
So as I started answering the question here, I realized I didn't really have any answers to the questions, but that's how I would approach it. And I feel pretty confident about looking at specific products from retailers out there. I'm pretty sure you'll start seeing like the same sort of products. I know for, I'm trying to think of a good product example here. How about microphones? That's another thing I can see right in front of me. Again, if you just do some competitor analysis, which I think is a very valid way to uncover, you know, what's working in the market, you don't have to create things from scratch, necessarily create a business model or educate the public on a certain niche that you're trying to create. If there's a market out there and you can put your own flavor on it, maybe add some value in your specific way, then it's a great way to figure things out. You go check out what your competitors are doing and try to do a better job or at least do it your way. Thanks, Carl, for sending in the question. Much appreciated. And if you have questions out there, you can shoot me an email, feedback at doug.show, or you could leave a voicemail. Love getting the voicemails. I haven't gotten many in a while. So I think I put all of them on. As long as they're a decent question with a decent quality, I'll get you on there. So if you do have any anything on your mind, let me know. Would love to feature you on an upcoming show. We'll have one more question here. This one's from Steven. I just recently found your podcast and website and wanted to say thanks for all the information. I'm building three websites right now with the help of a few writers, but I'm curious about your thoughts of buying a website in the under $10,000 range. I've noticed that above $10,000, many of the evaluation factors are the same, but the things are all over the place in the $3,000 to $7,000 range. Can you provide some thoughts on what you look for when you are buying a site and why some can be valued at 30x monthly revenue and others at 2x? Specifically, I'm looking at sites on Flippa so I can learn what to look for before investing more in sites. And then Stephen uh, is going going direct here and says, for the beer part, you got to try Elevation Brewing um, Op- Opry or Ipris 4. I'm not sure how to, it could be French, I'm not sure. And it says um, that it's a great beer. It's a Belgian quad. One of my favorites. I haven't tracked down that beer yet, Stephen. But uh, good questions here. So I actually asked a couple follow-up questions because I wasn't quite sure on a couple couple things. So first, thanks for the support, of course. Appreciate the compliments. So I've actually only purchased one site on Flippa, and it was basically a starter site. It had some almost what looked like either spun content or PLR. I think that's the private label rights. Is that what that means, PLR? So it's just like content that is written and it was sold and it can be published all over the place. And it was kind of garbage. It was linking out to, I think, a couple ClickBank products. There was no traffic, not ranking for anything. I bought it for $90, I think, a few years ago. And it was purely just to go through the process of purchasing something on Flippa. When I asked Stephen about the sites that he saw that were selling for a 2x monthly multiple, I was confused. I was like, how, where, where is that? That doesn't make sense to me. So as far as selling 
on a multiple of around 30X. That is sort of the standard out there. So it's usually 30X the monthly profit. So that's after expenses, revenue, minus expenses gives you the profit. So usually it's in that 30X range. It depends on so many factors. Uh, the niche, the, the trend, is the site growing? Is it declining? Is it uh, something that's seasonal? What's the quality of the content? How long is the content? Where is the traffic coming from? Are there diverse traffic sources or is it just from you know, Facebook or Pinterest or something like that? And what we've seen as this industry has matured is bigger um, companies like Empire Flippers, who's a site broker, they have moved upstream. So they used to deal with cheaper websites, but it takes them the same amount of work to sell a site that is worth, you know, 8,000 as selling a site that's 80,000. So they've made the minimum higher. So you can't get those cheaper sites under 10,000 from, you know, a great place like Empire Flippers anymore. You have to go somewhere else, maybe like Flippa. Because I don't have much um, experience with Flippa, I know the reputation previously was not very good, but I've heard that Flippa has improved over time, they're trying to make it more friendly for people to go purchase things without getting scammed. And that, that was sort of the issue. So people would maybe buy a site, maybe would have fake traffic or fake revenue uh, reports and people would buy the sites. Traffic would disappear because it was like bot traffic or something artificial, something fake. And you know, they would lose money. Basically, they bought a site that was not making any money. It was not really worth anything. And that obviously caused quite an issue. So apparently I have a phone call right now. And through the magic of editing, that was my sister. So I just chatted with her, her for a little while. <laughs> I forgot we, uh, we scheduled a call. So I was like, oh, I better grab that. All right, back to Stephen's question. This is really around like website Values And there's a, another wrinkle that I'll throw in here. And by the way, Stephen asked like several other, maybe 10 other questions as we had a back and forth going. But the thing that I will cover and that I mentioned to him was the done-for-you services, those are completely different animals. So if you buy a site from a done-for-you service like say brand builders or human proof designs or niche website builders, the sponsor of this Q&A segment, the value is in the, I guess, putting everything together, having a, you know, what seems to be a finished product, right? And I've always complained about these services, even though I'm an affiliate for them. And then I let them sponsor my show and it take money from them and stuff. So I, I mean, I get, I get the irony, you know, it's not lost on me here. People like to buy them. All right. That's the fact. People want to buy these done for you sites. The issue that I have with them, the things that I, you know, I tell, I tell the people running the services, there's a couple little pieces that are kind of funny. So I'll talk about those right now and then we'll talk about some of the valuations. So some of the some of the companies will let you tell them, "Hey, what niche 
Um, do you want to build it in? We'll find some keywords. We'll do some homework for you. We'll build the site and then we'll charge you some amount for it. So what, what mechanism is in place for the vendor that is creating the site to not just use the same you know, keywords, use the same niches. There's only a limited number. There's not unlimited, you know, topic ideas. So there's probably, um, I'm just making up a number. There's probably like 20 or 30, like pretty common niches out there. And I mean, they could just churn out these sites. They can be okay quality. Yes, I will, I will not admit, but I mean, the sites can be successful if you put in the work and you take what they've given you as the foundation and you build upon it. But the thing is, um, as you know, someone who doesn't enjoy services, I wouldn't do even try to run one of these services anyway. The problem is, um, you could just treat it like a, uh, you know, a machine. It's a factory churning out these content websites, selling them for a really high profit. And from where I sit, I wouldn't feel good about doing that. Now I can't tell these, uh, my friends, right, how to run their businesses. And there are satisfied customers out there. And I can't argue with that. But from where I sit, I was like, well, I don't want to run a service business. It seems like there's some funny business that could happen. And I'm not saying that any of the companies that I mentioned, I think they're all doing a great job. I don't think anyone's trying to take advantage of folks. It's just you know, some of the people that I ran across that were purchasing sites, they thought they could just buy a site and then it would just magically turn into a profit machine. And that's just not the case. So when you come to the pricing of those sites, those sites potentially can be making $0, but you may need to pay, you know, $6,000 for one of these sites. Prices vary depending on what you're getting. But the fact is, you may be paying a lot of money because you're you're buying the site based on the content, maybe some of the keyword research, maybe some of the technology as far as the theme or other plugins that are used, and just setting up the site. That takes work. You know, there's services rendered for that. There's value in that for sure. But you're paying for the that piece of work, right? You're not paying for the site based on the profit. So this is where it gets funny, where maybe you could buy a site that is a done for you site and pay five or $6,000 and it's making $0. Or you may be able to buy a site that's making say a hundred dollars a month for $3,000. If you're using the 30 X monthly profit multiple as your calculator. So it's kind of two different animals and it's really the way that it's marketed. So the companies that are selling the done for you sites, that's a service and they're framing it as a service. They're framing it as we're experts. We have done this, you know, pre, uh, you know, pre work. <laughs> They've done work ahead of time for you. They've done the keyword research. They they're using a proven, you know, template, a proven theme. They're, you know, selling it really well. And then they're, they're present. I got to make sure I'm not shooting myself in the foot here. I, I like all the companies I'm talking about and there are happy customers on the other end. But when I, when you look at it, it's just like you're placing the value on all the expertise behind it versus the profit. Both are valid. 
You can find people making those purchases every day. You can find happy and unhappy customers on both sides. So it's just a different way to uh, look at it. But yeah, there's a couple little little funny things where I was like, oh, it's be really easy for these services to kind of be bad players in this whole area. So I would make sure, and there's a lot of these services out there. So I would make sure you stick to the ones that I mentioned, brand builders, human proof designs, and of course, niche website builders, sponsor of this Q&A segment. I think I'm going to wrap it up here for, uh, for now. Sorry for the phone call interruption. I'm going to just leave that in. If you have uh, questions, would love to feature yours on this Q&A segment. Thanks again to Niche Website Builders. And I think I forgot to mention, you can get an additional 10% content if you buy one of their fabulous done-for-you sites after I just you know, went off on a kind of a tangent and rant there. You can also get 10% more content if you get one of their content packages. I have a 20,000 word um, subscription just ongoing. And you can save 10% if you do get one of their link building packages. And I am uh, currently running a budget shotgun skyscraper campaign and it's going really well. Um, Hopefully I'll have a new update for you in the next week or two. So have a great day out there. We'll catch you in the next episode.